You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined back in studio by Billy Galenko. How are you, Billy? Great. Glad to be back for another exciting episode. Yeah, this is back to a little bit of our old days, uh, the Vint podcast in the first, what, 40 episodes, 40, 50 episodes, maybe used to be somewhat of a blend between wine talk and market talk and investment talk, you know, because the podcast was partially part part of our investment arm of, of the Vint business. But now we've been talking to a lot more wine producers and like direct wine industry folks. It's good to have our current guest on today, giving us a flavor back of the economics of the whole industry. Yeah, yeah. Mike Vseth is our guest today. And I, I would say it's interesting because he provides an, a great overview. Um, we can talk a little bit about more who he is and a lot of his books that he's written, but he provides the overview and umbrella of the whole industry. So all of the folks that we've been talking to, whether they be producers or critics or um, importers, they basically fall under the general macro wine economics. It's a, it's a business and Mana helps you explain it in a really interesting way, or he explains it to us. Um, so I think it's, it's a really cool, cool guess and a way to kind of put everything in perspective. Yeah. And I mean, just to give folks a sense of the scale of the wine industry, we, we ran across this, this chart from the American, American wine economics society. There's two A's. I can't remember what the other A stands for. Oh, American Association of Wine Economists. Um, There you go. Anyways, so the AAWE put out this little chart that Billy and I took a look at using Department of the Treasury data on how many wineries are actually in the U.S. by state. And it was pretty interesting. The top, well, did anything kind of stick out to you in the top five? We have California, Washington, Oregon, Texas, New York. Was that kind of what you had in mind? Uh, I, I think the only real development from and this source that they shared was from 2018 2018 that's right yeah which uh i think is interesting but it's interesting to see texas even back then as a head of new york i would have i would have thought differently but otherwise i wonder if texas has overtaken oregon i bet they have overtaken oregon yeah it says texas had 588 oregon had 701 in 2018 i'm just thinking of the size of texas that they might have overtaken them yeah so I'm, I'm, I think the numbers might be different and I hate when we're using a, a different sources, but I'll just throw this out there. I'm looking at another thing in wine business right now. Um, that's a review of the wine industry that came out February 8th. And it says it has Texas still behind Oregon huh. by half, actually. Oh, wow. Um, so Oregon's, yeah. Yeah, it looks like, but I mean, the, the numbers on this, this other site are, are lower in general across the board, but yeah, it looks about to be ha- a little less little more than half as many wineries in Oregon as Texas. And you have to remember, that doesn't mean Texas isn't growing, but it also just speaks to the success that Oregon's seeing um, as well. Sure. Yeah, and I think what even though we're looking at a little bit outdated data, I mean, we could pull together our own thing, but I thought this was packaged pretty neatly. Um, it mm-hmm. does demonstrate just this, the sheer scale of these top two, three regions. California has a 2018, 4,800 wineries. Washington State, a little over 1,000. Really, just dramatically outpacing. Obviously, California is a huge state; it's our best grape-growing region in terms of volume production. But that's a staggering number: forty-eight hundred compared to uh, number two at a thousand. Yeah, yeah, and I and I I would say in this in this even more updated data that I'm looking at too. um, I'll share this thing with you. uh, It looks like that number has grown a little bit in California, but it looks like Oregon has actually overtaken Washington now as well, which that's interesting to see. And I, I think what's, what's also interesting to think about here is that wine has gone through some, some consolidation in recent years. The number of wineries continuing to grow in California is, is continuing, even though a lot of these brands may be purchased by bigger brands and are being consolidated, which is something we kind of, kind of briefly touch on um, with Mike, um, but it's just going on more in general. And it's fascinating to see uh, on on the chart that I'm looking at here, number seven Pennsylvania, then number eight mm-hmm. Virginia, then number nine Ohio. 
Ohio and Virginia just right neck and neck with total wineries based on this 2018 chart, which I think is fascinating given the proliferation of wine in Virginia recently and Ohio being a, from the outside, seemingly inopportunistic place to produce wine, but um, still keeping pace. Well, I think that goes back to more of a historical culture of of making different types of types of wine and wine from different types of grapes. Sure. Fruit wine. I have met Yeah, I have gone to like a little urban winery once in in Cleveland. Like I I know these things are are happening and and you know that people have been making wine in some of these states since people have immigrated here and then they've brought their winemaking heritage with them. So, it might not be like mainstream and commercial, but it's definitely been plugging along for for longer than we may think, for sure. Yeah, heck, Alaska with eight, Delaware with eight. I feel like Delaware needs to step up. They're uh, right there with Alaska. <laughs> well, yeah, and this according to this, DC has seven. So I think Delaware <laughs> yeah. really needs to step up if <laughs> if DC is it's right there. No, I think this is really interesting, and I, I think it just goes on goes to show you that the, the wine business continues to expand and and. I think we touch on this a little bit with Mike and we've touched on it with some other folks as well, that America is now the, the top consuming wine country in the world, not per capita, but by volume. Um, so it's interesting that a lot of countries are looking to the U.S. as as a, like a lucrative market to sell their wines, whether it be exporting from their countries. And then in the U.S., rekindling some of this tradition of create growing wine in your own backyard is also catching on because there's there's demand for it. Yeah, and Mike, I mean, Mike provides a ton of great explanation in our interview about the way that wine markets move, the way that wine markets develop, uh, and yeah, so, some of the macroeconomic, or even, I mean, we even talk micro and region by region and uh, governments and time periods, but even talking on a macro scale, how global economies affect the wine industry. Mike is really the, the wine economist. Uh, he publishes on his website, Wine Economist, um, his PhDs in economics from Purdue. Uh, he's currently a professor, lives out in Tacoma area, Washington. Uh, he wrote some some books that you've already mentioned, Billy, Wine Wars, Wine Wars 2, Extreme Wine, Around the World in 80 Days, Around the Wine World in 80 Days, Around the World in 80 World in 80 Wine. <laughs> yeah. Confusing that with another bestseller. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, Mike has a ton of great perspective and is super enthusiastic to be on the podcast. Yeah. Now, it's one of the I had reached out to Mike uh, about a year and a half ago when Wine Wars Two first came out. I'm a big a big fan of his books. I read Wine Wars One, and Wine Wars Two is really takes that and, and brings it to another level. So I you don't necessarily I recommend reading all of his books, but you can start with Wine Wars Two if you if you want to and <laughs> go back to see where it grew from. Um, but it gives you really cool insight into just just the whole world. And I, what he mentions in the podcast, and I think it's really right, is I've worked in many different facets of the wine industry, so. When I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is relevant to like, this part where I worked at a, a producer where we helped create, you know, they had a mass market brand and they also had a very niche brand. Mm-hmm. This is relevant to me when I was you know, working in Australia and we were trying to break into the Chinese market. So it's, it's interesting because he brings all of these facets without you having to work in, in all of these elements of the wine industry. So he said he's had both people, people who had no idea about the wine industry just work in other careers be like, wow, this is fa- fascinating. I never knew. You know, I look at the wine wall. In the grocery store, and I'll never look at it the same again. But then also people who are in the industry, like us, also it was insightful for me and it's really entertaining. So I thought I thought that was really fascinating. I also love his book on um, extreme wine. It's a little older now, but it was a really cool, he really goes to the limits of wine, whether it be like the cheapest wine possible or most expensive or talks about celebrity wines, but he goes to really the extremes. Um, and then I'm just started around the world in 80 wines. I didn't actually know that before. I'm a big fan of the original book. Um, and he kind of tries to follow the route that Phileas Fogg took in in the book, the original Around the World in 80 Days. So definitely recommend those. He's written others. Uh, but yeah, I would just say enjoy the conversation and definitely go check out his books. You can ha- get them on Audible also in, in paperback. So, or I guess in Kindle too. Yep. Awesome. Well, enjoy this interview with Mike Visa. All right. We are here with Mike Visa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Billy. Glad to be here. Yeah, I was telling telling Mike offline, and we will have mentioned a little bit in the intro that we do ahead of this piece, that my wine career has gone everywhere from kind of bulk 
bulk wine creation in Australia, also premium wine in Australia to a family-run winery here in the United States that also touches globalized wine styles. So it was so cool to read his book, Wine Wars 1 and 2, because they all followed my career. And then Extreme Wine is another one of my favorites, along with his other wine books. So we're so excited to have you. But before we talk about your books in particular, do you want to talk a little bit about your background, maybe your economics background, and then how you got into wine? Oh, sure. I'm, I'm an economist. I, uh, I started off as a tax policy expert. My PhD dissertation was on using tax policy to preserve agricultural land. And so I, I didn't know it at the time, but that got me a little close to a vineyard, although I didn't study vineyards in particular. And I became an expert on globalization. And the, uh, the first time I wrote about uh, wine economics and about the wine was for a 2005 book called Globaloni. It was a case of, of, of a set of case studies about how globalization plays out in different industries. And the, the name was what is true about these industries and what is just Globaloni, what is just nonsense that we make up about it. And so I did fast food and slow food. I did basketball as a U.S.-centered sport, and then soccer as a sport that is in the U.S. but centered elsewhere. And one of the industries I looked at was fine wine, was wine. And so that was just fascinating to me because I didn't, I, I was a wine lover and I'd been thinking about the wine industry for quite a while, but it was a chance for me to travel and meet people and talk about the industry part of it, not just wine. And at the end of, of this, I, I looked at that and I said, well, you know, I, I'm kind of fascinated with the global wine industry. And so I dived in and, and started the Wine Economist blog, and it's, it's been all wine, wine business, wine economics ever since. Nice. Was, yeah. was, there, was there a component of wine interest and wine love that went along with that? Or was it, Jay, found this category, and just from an economic perspective, it was interesting? Well, both, I think. That I, I, I really, Sue, my wife Sue and I, she, Sue, Sue works with me on the, these projects and she appears in the newsletter all the time. She's the, I like to say that she has the palette and I have the credit card. But the truth is, she has the credit card too. I ain't got nothing. But, but I'm, I'm glad that we, we both really love wine and are interested in it. But I, I could have kept that as an interest. It was really, the wine business is so fascinating. There's nothing that I've studied in economics that doesn't apply somehow to the wine business. And so I, it's one of those things where I just never get bored. And of course, there's so many wines from around the world that if you get bored of drinking wine, well, it's, you're just, it's you, not the wines. Yeah, this seems like there's a lot of conversation, especially recently as category like non-alcoholic wine, um, non and low alcohol wines have emerged and different trends around alcohol as we've had canned cocktails and seltzers and things like that emerge in different markets. I'm curious your perspective on some of the sort of macro conversation about the health or vitality or growth of the wine market, maybe just here in the US versus what you see in actuality when you survey it from an economic perspective. Is there anything to say about the difference between those popular stories and narratives and what you actually see as an economist? Oh, well, I think that one of the things that in economics you're trained for is to look below the surface. And, and, and this is something that I learned when I was studying globalization, that it's in, in popular culture or we're making policy, we tend to simplify things down, to streamline them so we can understand them. And the reality is usually a few layers deeper than that. So, so that for example, there are a number of simple stories about the changing wine culture, and they, they all contain a, a kernel of truth. One is generational change. Baby boomers just drink more wine, drank more wine than other generations in America and around the world. And as baby boomers, uh, a friend of mine says, age out. As baby boomers age out of the <laughs> wine industry, that's a, that's a kind way to put it. That has an effect. There's an economic effect. Um, those same younger generations don't seem to have the economic opportunities right now. Certainly, they don't feel like they have all of the economic opportunities of some previous generations and are hit by inflation and have high student loan debt, for example. Well, there's lots of economic reasons. I do think, and I was just quoted today, actually, on NPR, 
about this, that during the pandemic, I think some people began to look at self, at, 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 at health and self-care and began to think about their relationship with alcohol a little bit more, which is why not only has wine suffered a decline in demand just recently, but so has a beer and spirits, except for ready-to-drink cocktails for the most part. It's significant enough that the Financial Times of London had a report about the tequila makers in Mexico. A tequila was, was a big boom during the pandemic, and now those agave growers aren't so sure the market's going to be there in seven years when they would harvest the plants. So they're hesitating to committing to growing some more agave to make some more tequila. So there's just a lot of elements of this. Yeah. Well, hopefully those folks will just kind of grub up their, their Blue Weber and plant some actually interesting varieties of agave and make some mezcal instead. But that's neither here nor you there. You sound like you know about this. A, a little bit. I've read a book and gone down a rabbit hole of, of my, my passion for, for those types of varieties of agave. Uh, but I, I did want to pivot back quickly um, before I got too far down. Quiche is one of my favorite varieties of agave as a side, side note. But um, uh, you do actually mention in the in Wine Wars too the impact of the pandemic was unexpected. Um, since we're on that topic anyway, uh, especially I think it was especially in the American market where you wine with the global slowdown. Basically, everybody thought wine would would see a slowdown as well. But what we actually saw was an increase in certain segments, especially the higher, more premium wines that actually kind of grew. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's an interesting bifurcation of the market because, well, as Billy, from your experience working with uh, fine wine producers, but also the their commercial quanti- quality and quantity wines. That that there's more than one wine market. There's never never a one liner in wine. So that there's there are, and starting at about the global financial crisis, starting at about 2008, the the gap between those two got has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. These days, um, there is a eleven dollars, eleven twelve dollars is a critical line. The market in the U.S. for wines itself for about eleven or twelve dollars a bottle equivalent is just shrinking. The and the cheaper wines, it's just falling precipitously. And then the market for wines above twelve dollars is still growing in some segments. The fastest growing is the twenty-five dollars and up. So, so and so, trying to figure out uh, what is this? It's not as my European friends and my European friends think that American consumers are nuts because they, they see this and they say, well, they want to spend more money. They're just flat out. They've got too much money and they're just throwing money at these higher prices. But if you look at the wine wall at the shelves, you, you see that they're not spending more for the same wine. So they're not crazy. But for some reason, they don't like that old wine at the old price. They want to try something new at a higher price. So they're willing to spend more, but for something that's that's newer or different or they think might be better. It's interesting how the Europeans are reacting to this because for many of say take Chianti, for example, that Chianti in people's mind has an image about how much a bottle of Chianti should cost. And even with premiumization, they can't just raise that price very much. Consumers are very resistant to paying more for the same thing in wine. And so what they're creating in, in Italy and other places is what they call IGT wines, wines that don't say Chianti, but they have a private label that pitch an identity sort of brand or a different regional brand that someone will say, oh, I, that's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll try that, that it's higher on the wine wall. It's more expensive. Maybe it's better. So, so it's, but it's, mm-hmm. Ultimately, there's a concern that we're going to focus on the very highest peaks of the wine of wine, where the volumes are the smallest, and it's hard to sustain the industry if if it becomes an industry only for the five percent or the one percent. It seems like several categories in alcohol have gone up market a bit, though. Right, this this kind of trend in uh, smaller producers of like craft, craft beer, IPAs, that feels upmarket to me. Yep. I, I know more expensive than sort of the light beer and lager boom. Uh, and then e- even talking about tequila and mezcal, 
I would guess that Mezcal is more up market average price than tequila would be. And like sort of the trend towards rated drinks and seltzers, they're pretty expensive <laughs> per, per, per drink basis. So it seems like the entire category, alcohol in general, is moving up market. Oh, it is. And, and because of wine's peculiar nature, uh, those same trends that appear in, in even seltzer, but also craft beer and that are kind of magnified. With craft beer, think about the price difference between the cheapest and the most expensive. And it's probably 100%, maybe more, a little more than that, but the, the difference between a Budweiser and a, a Pliny the Elder or something is, 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 is big, but it's nowhere near as big as for wine. A few years ago, I sent my university students to the local Safeway store, and I asked them to do an economic geography of the wine wall there, to look at how many different wines, how many different countries, to look at the cheapest and the most expensive, and, uh, and then how many there were there. And they, were, they came back and they were stunned because to begin with, they said that they had counted about 800 different wines. We would say 800 different SKUs. And that was, of course, that was more than any other product category in the store. It was more than cheeses, more than cereals, more than, more than anything. The selection of wines was, the, was really the greatest. They had about 14 different countries, which when you think, you have to pick through that to get there. The cheapest wine was a, a, about $2 per bottle equivalent. It was a bottle equivalent because it was a five liter box of Franzia that they could buy with their Safeway club card discount for about $2 a bottle equivalent. And the most expensive wine was a Cristal Champagne that was $220. So $2, $200, it's just, it just the, 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 the magnification effect. And so the, both the potential for premiumization and the, the reason why people are afraid to buy less expensive wines. They're, they're, on the one hand, they're afraid to buy cheap wines because they think it might be no good. And they're afraid to buy expensive wines because they're afraid they're going to waste their money. They won't appreciate it. It's, and, uh, yeah. So you, you go into this uh, really, really in an interesting way um, in, in your book. Uh, I kind of wanted to circle back a little bit to what your books were. Um, can you talk about what the the uh, you have a range of books so you can briefly touch on all of them? But I guess Wine Wars one and two. I'd love to talk about what led you to create the first one, and then walking us through what changed in between because everything's changing so quickly. You note, and then maybe what what has changed even since you released that book a year and a half ago. Oh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. The so Wine Wars came out of a combination of things. It was when I after I published Global Oni and started to study the global wine market. It was about 2005, 2006, and I wanted to do more work. And I was very lucky at the timing because if it had been five years before, then the logical thing for me to do would be to put on my academic hat, my cap and gown sort of, and to write for other professors because there is an academic discipline of wine economics. And, and I would be doing those sorts of quantitative studies and uh, writing for other professors. The mid mid two thousands was a period when blogging was becoming more more relevant and important, and so I started the Wine Economist blog. The idea is that people call me the Wine Economist now, but the idea of of the blog was that I would combine the Economist magazine, which is the world's most most important, I think, uh, international business newspaper that looks at at business and economics topics, but also other things. That I would sort of marry that to Wine Spectator, which looks at the wine industry, but also within a lifestyle context. So it was the idea of, that if you combined Wine Spectator with The Economist, you'd get The Wine Economist. And, and so they gave me a, a, so I started to, to write about this. My very first column was a, a friend's family, we had a family winery, invited them to help bottle wine. And I'd never done that before, so I wrote about it in terms of Adam Smith's division of labor and how you, you can bottle wine with a dozen people uh, and, and all of that. So, so um, it was a way to reach out so that I could get to, to other economists, but also to consumers, but especially to people in the wine industry. And so it was great because I began to get feedback 
from people within the industry almost almost immediately. They, they would tell me what I got right or what they found interesting. And boy, they would tell me if I made a mistake. And it, it really helped me develop a network and a voice in these things. And as a result of that, I actually began to be invited to speak to industry meetings. And so get, I got constantly learning, sharing, learning more uh, through doing that. And so uh, I was fortunate and I was able to teach a class, a senior level university class that, that I called the idea of wine. And it wasn't a master of wine class. It was a bachelor of wine class where we covered the geography, the geology, the history, religion, the, the science, the marketing, the globalization of wine, just a survey about these things. And Wine Wars was written with that in mind. And so I, thinking about globalization, the uh, thesis of Wine Wars back in, that it appeared 2010, was that there were three forces, three dynamic forces at work changing the world of wine. There was first globalization, and globalization that brings a world of wine to your doorstep, that generated that 800 bottles, different bottles of wine at the Safeway store. There was globalization that created global opportunities and global competition. There was, I called it the miracle of two buck chuck, which is commodification of wine, that the problem of selling wine and in order to sell wine, a brand like two buck chuck had to simplify it in some ways. Um, uh, of course, Two Buck Chuck was that f- famous wine. It's still at Trader Joe's today. And I think in some places it may still sell for $2, but it doesn't sell for $2 here in Washington State where I live. But Two Buck Chuck simplified trust in buying wine. If you, if you go into Trader Joe's and you buy a bottle of Two Buck Chuck, you don't have to, you don't have to trust the vintage. You don't have to trust the, the grape variety too much. All you have to do is trust Two Buck Chuck and Trader Joe's, and you know they will, will sell you a good product. The commercialization and the commodification of wine helped expand, but it also changed wine. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, as uh, Billy, as you know, from those two sides of your wine experience, it's a very different idea of selling a wine for the masses and selling a wine for people who are uh, better educated about wine and so forth. So globalization drives it, commodification changes it, and then the final force was I called the revenge of the terroirists, the revenge of people who are pushing back, pushing back in favor of local, in favor of native, pushing back against the global forces, against the commodification forces. And I didn't actually make up this three-way analysis. There was a, a famous economist, a Hungarian economist named Karl Polyani who developed a theory called the double movement, the push movement of capitalism and the pushback movement of social forces. And I modified that to talk about the world of wine. Awesome. So that was, that was Wine Wars 1 moving in because you, you lean a lot more into ter- terroir Easts in Wine Wars 2. Do you want to talk about a little bit of, I guess, how, because there's many of the same topics in, including the commodification and stuff was, was in Wine Wars 2. I guess what what new lens led you to create more things there, and especially also maybe touching on something like the Chinese wine industry. I found that very interesting how it's evolved since you started, uh, almost blossomed out of non-existence when you first started. Um, well, not non-existence; it's been around for, like you said, thousands of years. But anyway, yeah, but, you want to touch on a few of those things? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Since after Wine Wars one, I think 2011, 2010, the it looked. At the, what I what I think of as that the the, the the central part of the wine market, and I was interested in how that was going to change, and so the, the next book was called Extreme Wine, and it was inspired by the X Games, because I'm I'm a little bit of a sports nut, and I was watching the Olympics, and I'm thinking, well, how is how is the Olympics going to change? And I realized that they're always introducing new sports and things. The Olympics changes not because the center of the sports change, but because of this change going on in the edges. And the X Games was a tremendous example of that. If you look, there's so many X Games sports that have now entered the sporting mainstream. It's one way to change. So for Extreme Wine, the, I, I sat down and I spent an afternoon brainstorming all the different extremes you can go to in wine. Uh, and then I tried to explore those. So I decided what is the, what is the, uh, uh, 
cheapest wine that you can find. I found it too. It was one buck chuck. It was a wine that, that I, I bought in the European Union. It, it said it was made from European Union grapes. And so it didn't <laughs> even come from a single country. And I could get a, a one liter, a cardboard box, tetra pack of it for one euro. So it was, that's, and it, it wasn't the worst wine I've ever had, but it was the cheapest wine. And then the most expensive wine, and you, know, you can go stratospheric for, for those wines. That's always going up. I decided to think about the best wine and the worst wine. And the worst wine I found, I didn't actually taste it, but I, I found a professor who was teaching a, a, a wine false class. And she said that it smelled like if you had a can of rotten canned clams and you open that up. And so you can try to imagine what that would smell like. It just burned her eyes when she smelled it. It was given to her, taken from a commercial shelf. Someone bought that wine at a store and couldn't believe it. It actually made it through all anyway. Was it a was it a natural wine shop in L.A.? It, no, it was not. It was. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I won't. I won't ask too many questions about that. I, I did once meet with a natural wine producer in Georgia, who assured me that mousiness was a feature, not a flaw. So I, I, I can appreciate <laughs> what you're saying. So I thought about all these different differences. It was interesting. The worst wine, and for the best wine. I asked Jancis Robinson, the famous English wine critic. I said, what was the best wine you ever had? And she did not hesitate a moment. She told me it was particular Burgundy that she had on a particular evening at dinner in London with a particular person. And it wasn't the wine that made that the best wine she ever had. It was the memory of the experience. That made me think that wine, wine has this ability to unlock things for us. Well, I moved along through a book called Money, Taste, and Wine, and then Around the World in 80 Wines. And it was during the pandemic that I went back. It was 10 years after Wine Wars came out. And I decided I would reread it after all those years. And I don't know if that was a mistake or not, but I read the first chapter. And I thought, man, I still like it. I've read this a million times. And I still kind of like it. It makes me smile. This is good. Then I read the second chapter and I said, I would never write that now because the world of wine had changed a lot and because I had learned a lot and my experiences had changed. So that meant I had, I had to write a second edition. And originally we call, I called it a second edition, but the, the marketing people at my publisher said, no, Wine Wars 2. That's going to that's gonna be good. And they had named Wine Wars originally. I had given it a different name. So I went with them. And so I went back and revisited those same three forces, which had changed. The um, globalization, commodification, the revenge of the terroir. I was able to talk about things like the natural wine movement, for example, that really wasn't on my radar. I was able to catch up with China, for example. And all of the books, all of the books have had a, a chapter on China. And, and it was a different set of things in, in each of them. In the very first wine wars, well, the chapter on China begins with my first taste of Chinese wine. One of my college students, university students, had studied in China and brought back a bottle of 1999 Cabernet Sauvignon from a famous producer. And I found a tasting note online. And when I opened it to the student, to a student group to taste around, that online tasting note rang true. It said, you sniff this, going to be ashtray, coffee ground, and urinal crust, which <laughs> meant that awful ammonia smell. That not, that you said, not that I spent a lot of time sniffing around a urinal crust, but I, I knew what he was talking about. But then we also had a wine from Grace Vineyard. Um, Grace Vineyards, the family that owns that is actually a friend of a friend of mine. So I was trying, and, and that was really, it, it was completely different and really unlocked things. And so, so I've been following along on, on the, the Chinese wine. I still have a bottle of that Ashtray coffee ground wine, and I'm afraid to open it because I don't think it's gotten any better. But the, the wines have changed in, 
around the world in 80 wines. I was able to taste that there'd been a lot of investment from especially France, also Australia and Spain, especially France. So in, around the world in 80 wines, we taste a, a glass of a wine called Ouyun, o, uh, A-O-Y-U-N, which is made in Shangri-La in the, in the high Tibetan mountains. And it's made by Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. It's made by the French. We were able to buy it here in Western Washington for 320 US dollars. And it was, of course, it was standard French quality. Uh, and it was just amazing that you would make a wine at almost 10,000 feet to do this. In, in Wine Wars 2, I go back around uh, telling these stories and, and try to get back to a, a question that I'd asked earlier, which is um, the Chinese wine market boomed. And I wondered if it was, who was it for? Because initially it would seem like people were interested in the Chinese market because they could sell wine to China. And then China became the seventh largest producer of wine. And so it could produce its own wines. And the period, it seemed like only a matter of time before it began to export it. Since Wine Wars 2 has come out, we recognize that the Chinese wine market has collapsed. Chinese consumption has fallen almost by half. Chinese production has fallen. Uh, the, I think the pandemic had an enormous effect. It, wine in China is a social, a social beverage. People gather together to drink it. They couldn't gather together for any reason during the pandemic. China had the draconian lockdowns. And now, well, now for the young, upwardly mobile Chinese population, economic prospects are not very good. Splashing out on a French wine, maybe not what they want to do. With lower wine demand in many parts of the world, I think we all believe that China would save us. And now it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So it's, it's a story with a lot of ripples, a lot of impacts. I, I really... Yeah, that's really interesting. To, I, I think that makes sense. Um, it'll be interesting to see as, as they open up again in, in any, any, I guess, impacts of efforts that the government's going to have to try to jumpstart the, the younger folks and getting them jobs. I know there's some encouragement for them to go back to the countryside and take other jobs, um, kind of like a reverse. Uh, one thing I, I really thought was interesting about the China facts too is you were mentioning that they did have a, like, there's been like, millennia of actually importing wines to China for like even as early as like Uzbekistan back in the day. I thought that was really interesting too, thinking that there was a culture of drinking wine to an extent, grape wine that is um, in China previously as well. Well, that's right. And, and during the early communist days, they actually encouraged wine consumption because if, if people are going to have alcohol, um, the, the alcohol could be made of, of grapes and so wine or brandy or so forth, or it could be made of grain, uh, uh, grain alcohol. And in the early communist days, when there were famines, grain was thought to be too precious to waste on alcohol. So they encouraged the wine drinking so that they could preserve the food to, to deal with the, the growing population and its nutritional needs. Yeah, that, that's interesting. The, I think the idea that particular because uh, we're talking about economics and some about macroeconomics um, and the way that wines move around the world. But it's interesting when you zoom in on a specific country and the domestic economic issues of a given time, how that affects importation, exportation in that place. What Have there been any, any pressures like that here domestically that have affected the way that the U.S. has consumed wine over the last 50 years? Obviously, nothing like a famine, like we're talking about way back communist China, but here in the U.S., can you name anything like that? Oh, it did. In, in, in different regions at different times, the uh, politics is really a big factor in the U.S. wine market. I, I argue in, in both of the wine war books that the U.S. Uh, wine market is still recovering from prohibition because we had that period of prohibition. The U.S. was a wine drinking culture. There were wineries all around the U.S., and then, and then prohibition uh, brought that to a very bad end. People think that you couldn't get wine, uh, that wine consumption must have fallen during prohibition. 
But in fact, wine consumption increased during Prohibition because there was a loophole in the Prohibition laws that said that private citizens, families, could make up to 200 gallons of wine a year for, for non-alcoholic consumption. That's what the law said, non-alcoholic use. And so people, instead of buying professionally made wine, people would buy grapes. And so grapes from California were shipped all the way across the country on trains. Can you imagine what a, what a boxcar full of grapes would look like by the time it got to Philadelphia or New York City or Chicago? I mean, I think it probably was starting to rot pretty good by the time it got there. These weren't refrigerated things as well. And, but they took them, made them in the bathtub, made them where they could. And so bad amateur wine replaced decent industrial wine, industrial produced wine, and gave wine such a terrible reputation. As soon as they had a chance to buy beer or spirits legally, they said, forget that wine, I'll never get it again. It was, it was sad. And so uh, turning America from a wine drinking culture to one that, that didn't like wine was one effect of prohibition. But then there was also the uh, breakup. Um, uh, each state was given the right to regulate its own markets. And so each created its own distribution framework and paperwork and so forth. And this gave us the, what we call the three-tier system, where a winery sells its, uh, its wine to a state distributor and a private company, but within the state. And then the, the, the state distributor sells it to a retailer or a restaurant, and they sell it to you. So a wine goes through three hands with three markups before it gets to a final consumer. And this is, of course, one reason why it's hard to buy wines frequently, that there's no, there is no national market for wine. It takes enormous scale and a lot of money to be able to set up distributors in every single state. And it's also why wine is much more expensive here than it is, for example, in Europe. In Portugal, the center of the wine market is about two and a half or three euros. You can expect to find a decent grocery store wine for two and a half or three euros. By the time it gets to a shelf in the U.S. here, that wine is 15 bucks. And so it, this, this, although we have a, a choice of things, it changes what our options are really like. And, and so it, uh, this is part of what contributes to wine being, being increasingly to a narrower base of consumers, people who can afford to spend more money for, for wines that have a certain quality. Yeah, there is. You touch on two things that I, I thought were really interesting also from the book. One is the kind of thinking about your, your New Zealand example and economic factors really allowed that wine industry to grow. And also just the idea that New Zealand wine wasn't even really thought of much seriously 30, 40 years ago, I guess 30, but 40 years ago. And, and then now everybody, to your point in the book, has had like a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And then the other idea that you bring up is like the UK and London kind of being the the wine center, the center of the wine world was something that I didn't really realize until really joining Vint and trying to invest in wines and and sell wines into the US. Everything does really kind of run through through that area, whether whether you try to or not. Which I absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I I actually in Wine Wars I give an address for the center of the wine world. And it's the address of the Tesco supermarket headquarters. And in wine when the first wine wars, Tesco which is a supermarket chain in, in England and other places. It was the largest seller of wine in the world. And that changed for Wine Wars too. They still sold the most wine in England, but they had actually sold off some of their supermarket chains in other parts of the world. So they're, they're not the very biggest. In the US, the biggest seller of wine, I believe, to be Costco. And it's, it is interesting in two ways. One is that Costco uses the Tesco model which Tesco pioneered private label wines, Tesco's finest New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Costco adapted that so you can get Kirkland Signature Sauvignon Blanc. And this is, this is one of the growth areas of wine these days. But yeah, it is, it's for you and Vint, of course, it's the center of the uh, fine wine auction world and the trading 
of the, the investment quality fine wines. There are other centers, New York, Hong Kong, and so forth, but it, it really is. But it also is where so much activity for supermarket and other wines. And the reason is it's a pretty good sized population. They don't make very much wine of their own. Um, people are have enough income to spend quite a bit. So it's it's one of the two targets along with the US for everyone trying to sell wine to export wine. It's even a very big target for American producers. US producers actually have trouble selling wines abroad because of the extra costs and so forth. But the UK market is a good market for many of our wines. Yeah, and a retailer that sticks out for the private la- labeling um, is Trader Joe's. I think if they're not the first in California, I know they're second behind Costco, but I thought I had read that maybe they had surpassed Costco. Just fit that, that idea fits perfectly into the rest of their retail experience, which is all about private labeling. Maybe there are, do you know how they rank compared to Costco in California? I don't know how they rank uh, okay. across the nation. But I talk yeah. about Trader Joe's in both books, and it, it's because um, I use a, one retailer in each country, to uh, in each important country, to talk about how that market developed. So that in the UK, I talk about Tesco and how they develop private label wines. In the US, I talk about in Germany, because Germany for bulk wine, for a very large, inexpensive wine that is shipped in uh, 20-foot shipping containers in plastic bladders that hold 25,000 liters of wine at a time. Big bag and big box. Germany is the, um, is the country that does the most of that inexpensive wine. It gets put into uh, own label, custom label, store label wine bottles. And the biggest seller there is a company called Aldi. And there are, there are Aldi stores now in the U.S. Um, the Aldi stores came after the Second World War. I promise I'll get back to Trader Joe's. The Aldi stores developed in Germany after the Second World War because they needed a, a ultra super discount store, bare bones. If you go in an Aldi store, you better bring your own bag because they, they won't even sell you a bag. People steal the boxes so that they can put their groceries in those boxes. And the two brothers that own Aldi got into a fight about selling tobacco. So they split the, the country in half. One got northern Germany, another got southern Germany. Then they split the world in half, and they split the U.S. in half. Um, one brother, they got the eastern part of the United States and opened up Aldi's in, in Iowa and Illinois, where people flocked to them, even though it was an unfamiliar German name, because they were really were happy to pay ultra-discount prices for decent goods. And the other brother bought Trader Joe's. And the reason why Trader Joe's has all those store label wines and why it has all those store label products like Trader Giuseppe's olive oil and, and so forth is because it's, it's really a German company with its surfer, surfer dude sort of togs. Yeah, but they sell so much wine. They are terrific. Two, two parts of that story I love. Well, Brady, I was telling Mike before we got on, actually, um, when I was in Australia, I used to have to fill up those big plastic bladders. I would climb like a shipping container and like tape them oh, up wow. and then and then dump it in. So I have firsthand experience in those guys. Um, but the other part was the idea of Costco's wine program. I think you mentioned in your book that somebody, either a former Tesco employee or somebody with knowledge of that space, or it might have been an MW, actually, actually went to Costco and was like, hey, I have an idea. You should do this. And then that kind of spurred how their wine program was Well, that's shaped. right. It, it, it was, in fact, a former wine director at Tesco. Mm, that's what it was. Who came on. He, he was kind of an interesting guy because he did so many different things, but he also did that. And, and uh, so, so if you go to Safeway, that one Safeway had 800 wines in it. And I wrote about it on The Wine Economist. And apparently the store manager read that he had 800 different wines and hadn't really realized that. And he said, that's not really enough. Because the store across the street had 1,600 different wines. And the farm store a mile away had 3,000 different wines. So they went from 800 to 1,200 for this. The, uh, I've forgotten my point. I well, got I was, lost. I was asking about the, the guy who helped oh, yeah. the Costco program. That's right. And so the, yeah. the, what's so interesting is where everybody else is going more and more and more, what they decided to do 
at Costco is, first of all, having the Kirkland Signature brands, but also that they would have a small, much smaller uh, wine wall. The typical store now has uh, 150 or fewer wines. So maybe one-tenth of what a, a Kroger store or a Ralph's store, about one-tenth of the selection. And unlike Ralph's or Kroger or Safeway, they run out. So they, they will contract with really good wineries for very small runs of, in some cases. So they create a treasure hunt atmosphere. You go to Costco and you see that wine. I understand that there's been some Screaming Eagle at some Costco stores recently, that they're selling it for about $3,200 a bottle, which is less than, than apparently what you can get it at an auction or something. Anyway, you see it there and you think, if, if, uh, if I don't buy it now, it probably won't be there next time. If I buy just one bottle, I'm going to regret not buying six bottles. So you end up with the treasure hunt. You're constantly looking. You go back again and again and again. If you see something you might like, you stock up. It is interesting how instead of adapting to us, it's training us to be the kind of Costco shopper they really want. Yeah. And I, I love the idea that just Costco didn't really have much of a wine program. And some guys like, hey, you should do this. And then one guy has basically basically started, kickstarted this whole thing, um, and this experience that we all have. I thought that was fascinating. No, that's right. And, and so Costco wine buyer are some of the most um, prominent people in the world. Because you can get their attention, but it, uh, it, it, it can really be worth something to you. But, but I have one friend who's, who makes some wines, and he told me the story that he, they found out that in Southern California, which is a good market for his wines, that Costco was by far their biggest retailer of wines. And it scared them. Because they uh -huh. said, what if, what, if, what if one day Costco decides it's not going to carry our wines? What can we do? And so he, he had to, he had to re revise their whole marketing plan. Just because it was too much of a risk, too much dependence on on one outlet for that. Yeah. So there's two two things I want to eventually switch here to um, your your notes on on climate change and how that's going to be reshaping and what what other forces I guess you see reshaping the wine industry. But you mentioned one of your friends was one of your friends in was it Washington State had a wine called Secret Squirrel. Is that yes. the, is that the right one? So. I, I have one question for you. As I was listening to that, you said secret squirrel. The secrets are always mysterious. Everybody gets excited by that. I think that's true. But then your next comment was, and squirrels, what could be more fun than squirrels? Well, I, I can think of a lot of things that are more fun than squirrels. I want to see, do you just really like squirrels? <laughs> oh, no. It's, if, you, if you were to see the label, the, the label shows a squirrel in a big party mask. I mean, he's, the, the, he is just rocking it, that squirrel on this. Yeah, no, it's, it, was, it was interesting <laughs> because in terms of branding, you, um, you've, in the old school was you branded around the place. And so you'd show a picture of a chateau or some beautiful vineyards or something like this. And by the time my, and my friend has several wine labels and, and some of them are very much wines of place. For this wine, which comes from a comes from Red Mountain, Washington, a place in this, they decided that he wanted to appeal to younger wine drinkers, drinkers in their twenties and thirties, and they're driven maybe a little bit more by identity. They, it's not about how the wine tastes or about where the wine comes from, because maybe they don't care as much about that as how the wine will make them feel. Will it make them feel like sharing, having a party, having a good time together? And so that was where the origin of Secret Squirrel. And I'll admit that he hired consultants to try to parse through how you would do this sort of thing. There are different approaches. One of the other labels I write about is 19 Crimes, which is a treasury wine estate wine that has a picture of a criminal on most of the labels. I guess it has a picture of um, Martha Stewart on the Chardonnay now. And she actually did serve some jail time. So I suppose that's... Yeah. Still of that, but but the, the the focus group analysis of that was that young millennials, young males don't there were we don't need no stinking badges. We're sort of outlaws. We're renegades, and so we'll buy a wine with a criminal on the on the label. He didn't want. He was not trying to do that. And so, secret squirrel. I guess secret squirrel is uh, is military talk for a spy or a secret agent. And I I didn't know that. 
And, and so when he told me about this, I was skeptical. I was meeting him, him in Walla Walla, Washington. And then, oh, young, young people, huh? They'll be attracted to this. So I walked back to the hotel. And as I walked back to the hotel, I went past one uh, uh, restaurant after another. And there were groups of young people with secret squirrel bottles drinking it. And I thought, man, they're sending me a message. <laughs> and it's See, good yeah. wine. No, when I did Wine Wars 2, I was updating Wine Wars 1. I was trying to bring it to where the, how the wine world had changed and how I think about the wine world had changed. And so then I began to think about the future. And so I added a completely new section uh, where I talk about what I call wine's triple challenge. And the triple challenge are three sort of crises, um, the economic crisis. The, so it gives me a chance to, in one place, analyze some of the wine economics problems that the wine industry faces. And then the environmental crisis, the, some of the, the, the things that are going on there. Uh, and then there's what I call the identity crisis. The, in the case of the, uh, of the environmental crisis, um, in my previous books, I talked a lot about climate change and global warming and how vineyards and so forth would have to move. And so I analyzed the climate change in wine from a business perspective. I said, if you're a winery or winemaker or wine grower, climate change is a risk. It's an obvious risk. Under the Biden administration, it's even a, a business risk that businesses have to formally take into account in their, in their filings for their corporations. And so I, I analyzed it in terms of how different uh, people in the wine sector are, are, are treating the climate risk and how seriously they're treating it. Um, uh, wine's identity crisis is is how I ended up on this, and I think that that comes today. The the one of the problems within the industry that we talk about is that everybody's telling their own wine brand story. They're telling their nineteen crime story, or their secret squirrel story, or their franzi big box story, but no one's really telling wine story very well. And so the there have been calls for some generic marketing or marketing campaigns to help people uh, understand and appreciate uh, wine some more. And this is exacerbated by the, the, the current kind of neo-prohibition environment we're in. Wine, I believe, as part of a balanced diet, wine taken in moderation as part of a, can be part of a healthy lifestyle. If you do anything too extreme, wine or, or Cheetos or anything, to extreme is not really going to be good for you, um, but but people now focus on on the alcohol in wine, ignoring the other elements of, of wine in a lifestyle, and this is quite dangerous. I think the World Health Health Organization said even a single glass of wine a week was going to be bad for your health, and so this is a a tremendous danger, and um, and if wine just becomes alcohol, then then it's, it's curtains for wine. And so we, we, we need to be telling these stories in a different way. There are heavy regulations about wine. A winery can't say my wine is good for you. And so yeah. uh, we're trying to feel out how to tell our story better. Yeah, I know there have been those alcohol brands. Uh, I can't remember the name of the, the beer company. That, is it called Athletic Brewing? That makes yes. the electrolyte-infused beers and things like that. And I know that there's um, a few wine brands, I can't, can't recall the names right now, that kind of do the same thing. It seems like the folks calling the demographic who is on this health kick anti-alcohol is the same demographic that 10 years ago was worth spiking our numbers on. <laughs> Americans drink so much alcohol. I guess it's a pendulum swing, right? Uh, if you drink too much for long enough, eventually you're like, yeah, like no one should ever touch this stuff. I think I, I I do think that's human nature. Yeah, human nature to to re rethink these things, and I think I do think the pandemic was this cause for reflection. Um, liquor sales shot through the roof at the start of the pandemic. People stocked up big time, and and uh, then they started to drink it, and now they're having these second thoughts. So, yeah, yeah, lo locked in the house with your family with a bunch of alcohol probably isn't if you <laughs> drag that out for too many months. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get to a close here, I know we're, we're coming up on time. I wanted to hear, you said your wife is the one with the palate, but it sounds like you also, you drink wine relatively frequently. What's your, uh, sort, sort of, what's your go-to these days? What are some of your favorite regions or producers or 
styles that you like to go after? Well, people ask that a lot, but it's it, in in um, uh, in in my in my work, I'm constantly trying new things, and so I I I don't dwell very long on on uh, what my favorite thing is because I'm always interested in the very next thing I'm going to open up. That said, I I have given it some thoughts, and and so two things I enjoy because they come in so many different. Uh, I really like Riesling wines because Riesling wines, you can have them bone dry, very austere. Uh, you can have them off dry, off dry, medium dry. They can become very sweet. They can be balanced in all sorts of different ways. If I had a desert island wine, if I was going to be stuck on a year in a desert island and I could choose all different kinds of Rieslings, I think I would never be bored. And so that's good. And, and people, most people don't... Uh, uh, look at me when I say that because they think of Riesling as just being a sweet wine. And even in Germany, Riesling isn't a, really a sweet wine anymore. And then the other one is Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir goes so well with food that uh, so many people enjoy it. Uh, I have a friend, Tim Haney, who does a lot of scientific work on people's palates and what they like and don't like. And he finds that among red wines, Pinot Noir is a universal like. That, that it's not too tannic, it's not too acidic, uh, but it has character and it comes, you know, New Zealand one tastes different than an Oregon, than a French, than uh, the one from Australia. So those are my two. Nice. Yeah, we, I know you're, you're deep in the wine world if you're choosing Riesling and Pinot Noir, because mm-hmm. I think that's where it seems like where everyone eventually ends up. And I've heard oftentimes it's like the sommeliers of the world, their favorite wines are all Rieslings. Yeah, um, maybe that's the maybe that's the end point for everyone. No, and so many people these days are appreciating Sauvignon Blanc, uh, uh, especially New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. So when they tell me that, I tell them, "Well, try Vermentino from Sardinia, because that will, that has sort of that same profile of a high acidity and and nice fruit and a little savoriness." Uh, and they do this, and they wow. I like something more than just New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And hopefully it opens the door and they, they try something else. Um, when I was teaching my university class, the, I had a few outside of class wine tastings. The first one was always six Rieslings, starting from the most austere, dry Riesling from Alsace to a, a very sweet German Riesling. And all, but up, and, up through the, the, the scale of this, and I would tell them, you're going you're gonna to like at least one of these, and you're going to hate at least one of these. And I remember one year I asked at the end, what have you learned? And a student raised his hand. He said, well, I think it's about balance, professor, <laughs> that there are different balance points here. And some of us like this balance, and some of us like that balance. And it was great because it showed them, it gave them permission to like what they liked. And it gave them permission to not like what someone else liked. And I thought that that's, that's actually a great lesson for all wine drinkers, that who should you please? You should please yourself. You should find wines that you like and you should enjoy them and try other things. But you don't have to like what I like or a critic likes or something like that. You should, you should please yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody is sense of balance because I, I was literally about to say, that's like with Riesling and Pinot Noir, a through line of that is is good acid across the board. Yep. But I know that wine drinkers or wine experts and you got kind of sore, they like more acid anyway. Whereas I do have friends who I give them a, a high acid wine and they say it's sour. And I'm like, you don't have to use that word. But oh yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> well, I know. Also, uh, well, I was just going to say that the Vermentino example was great. Um, over Christmas, my dad had his first Vermentino. You know, we were at an Italian place and I recommended it. And, oh, this is amazing. Like, I'm going to go buy a lot of Vermentinos now. And he's like, where, where? And he kept calling it Vermentina. But I was like, oh, at least he's trying it. He, he's excited. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. The, about the sour wine, some of the research shows that there are, there are genetic issues, that some people are very, very sensitive to bitterness, for example. Mm-hmm. And that it can be, there can be a, just a single gene that triggers the bitterness. So they hmm. will want a sweet wine, not because they're, they're, they're unsophisticated or not because they're, they don't know much about it, but because the sweetness covers up the bitterness of the acid to them. 
Yeah. And, and so it's people can be hardwired. People can learn about wine, but they, they, we're also all hardwired to react to wine in different ways. Yeah, that's so interesting. And everybody should also get wine words too, because when you talk about the like, Asian palates and then trying and what they would use wine with, um, my fiance is Taiwanese and she doesn't really drink anything with her meals. It's before and after. And it's, it's all of those things. And I'm like, yeah, this, this makes sense. Everybody enjoys it in a different way. So. Well, anyways, well, thank you so much for joining. We could probably go on for, for hours here. We're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Brady. All right. That was our interview with Mike Viseth. I hope everybody really got their minds blown in terms of the scale of the wine business. And then we'll basically look at things in a completely different way. Every time they're looking at a bottle of wine and think about where it came from and what it costs to kind of get there. If you want to go read more of Mike's books or yeah, after you've listened, just read Mike's books, we'll include a link to the Amazon on his author page there. So you can go buy the books right away um, in whatever format you prefer. And next week, we'll be back with another interview. We have uh, one of the fan favorite guests coming back, Berghound. So get excited for that episode. Be back next week with that interview. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.